7.03, and don't you know it, the countdown is on less than a week till the Super Bowl. Of course, we're going to be talking about that tonight, plus a ton of other things. It's Ira on Sports on 95.9, the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira not in studio with us tonight. Um, I, I'm not sure where he is right now, but I know this might be a record for the amount of games you've seen in one week, Ira. So uh, tell us about it. Well, I think uh, you know, now that football season's winding down, there's one game left. I, I thought I would catch a lot of college basketball, and I went up to Pittsburgh and saw the Duke-Pitt game on Tuesday. And then, uh, as you know, my friend Mike Isolino is a coach at Robert Morris, who is now first in the Northeast Conference, and they played games on Thursday and Saturday. And then I saw Temple Cincinnati. It's Fran Duffy's final year as the coach at Temple. Uh, they had four losses. Cincinnati has three losses. Two of the top uh, 50 teams in the country were playing in Philadelphia, so I caught that game. So four college basketball games in six days. <laughs> in three different arenas. <laughs> Not even like you're just hanging out in one spot. Um you know, there's so much to get to in the world of sports. The old Anthony Davis news came out today. The Hall of Fame has been announced um, for baseball. But let's talk about th- th- these games that you took in. First, Duke versus Pitt. Um, tell us a little bit about this one. Well, right now, Duke is up 6 nothing on Notre Dame. And as we talked about Duke all year, it's, there's, I think the interest in Duke this year is, is they're a great team. They have two of the best players. There's a lot of friends of mine that aren't really college basketball fans that are big-time pro basketball fans, mm-hmm. and they're following it because they want to see how good R.J. Barrett is and how good Zion Williamson is. These are two players that are could be uh, franchise-transforming. You know, to, When LeBron went to the Cavaliers, that totally changed the franchise. When Shaquille O'Neal went to Orlando, changed the franchise. These two players have that potential. So if you're a Knicks fan, and a lot of Knicks fans don't really care about college basketball. You're like you're watching Duke because you want to see how good Zion Williams is. This player going to be the next player? And then for college basketball fans, this is a great team. I mean, rarely have you had three of the top five players in the country on the same team uh, watching them play. So it uh, it was my first time in person to, to see Duke play. Uh, and of course, I went to law school at Duke, so I'm interested. I'm just a fan of Duke myself. <laughs> so it was great to go up there and, and see the game at at, at uh, Peterson Event Center. Uh, it's a Fairly brand new arena. I've uh, been around 15 years, uh, but it's uh, it was packed. Uh, I would say 50-50 fans between Duke and Pitt. Um, they have a thing called the Pittsburgh Zoo, and as like the kids are in the front in the front sections, like you see a lot of college basketball arenas. What's really stupid how Pitt does it is that when you watch it on TV, they have these corporate boxes right behind the benches. So when you look at the benches, you see the players and you see people eating wine and cheese at the corporate boxes. Mm-hmm. You don't see the fan, the kids. And I always I talked to the AD one time and said, you've got to switch it around. Like when you watch Duke play on TV, you see the Duke students and they're jumping around and it causes excitement. When you watch Pitt play, it looks like it's boring. And, and the game was a really exciting beginning, but it looks boring on TV because you're, just, you're seeing people eat wine and cheese the whole time. <laughs> but um, uh, interesting, Jay-Z was at the game. So to show you how much star power is, here's a college basketball game on a Tuesday night in Pittsburgh, and Jay-Z showed up and sat in the front row. So that was uh, pretty exciting to see. You know, it's interesting what you brought What you brought up is spot on, Ira. And I'm sure, you know, you spent a lot of time in New York, so you're experiencing this as well. But, you know, like my social media, I'm from New York. I'm a Nick fan. I haven't seen New Yorkers as excited and into college basketball since maybe, you know, I can't even remember a player. I mean, LeBron obviously didn't go to college, so there was no reason to get excited about it. But Ira, between this team, you know, these three that could all go top five, I think this is as excited as any NBA fan, like you said, has been in a long, long time. Yeah, that was my first time. I mean, I really think, of course, Zion is the pick. I mean, R.J. Barrett, this is one of those drafts, though, that 
I am, I'm not a fan. I think RJ, my problem with RJ Barrett on this Duke team, as I'm watching the game on TV, he just threw a great pass design. So I guess it got through to him because they're up 10 2 over Notre Dame. But he, in the game against Duke, Trey Jones, their point guard, was injured. So he was sort of running the point, and he doesn't pass the ball. He really is a two guard and with blinders on that just wants to score. And some of his plays made no sense. He would go one on four and throw the ball up, and Zion Williamson is standing right behind him, and he won't just give it to him. It's like, here's <laughs> one of the greatest players on the best player on the planet, just hand the ball and the guy will dunk it. And Zion shot in that game. He was 11 for 13 for 25 points, seven rebounds, and seven assists. Most of those were just on rebounds, times when he got the ball, and just he's unstoppable. He's a little smaller in person than I thought he would be in terms of height, but the explosiveness is off the charts. I don't, I mean, I'm, call, I'm saying he's Russell Westbrook, just explosive. When you can see Russell Westbrook jump just from like a standing stop and jump up, you're like, wow. I mean, that's what Zion Williams does. Plus, he weighs probably 100 more pounds than Russell Westbrook <laughs> does. I have never, and they compare him to Charles Barkley. He's more explosive. I saw Charles Barkley when he played in college. He's much more explosive than Charles Barkley was. Charles Barkley would like struggle to, I mean, it, it, it was, he was big and he boxed out, but Zion Williamson can just he jumps hard, fast. It's not these dunks that you see at uh, the dunk contest. He can just, on a standing spot, getting a rebound, jump up there and just be taller than I mean, way up at the top of the rim uh, and dunk the ball in, but just jumps faster and stronger than anyone else. No, you're, you're absolutely right. He, he looks like something out of a cartoon almost when you watch him play. Um, before we move on in this, you, you, you brought up something interesting. Um, you said it was about 50-50 Duke and Pitt fans. Duke, in your experience, they have to be the most traveling team in college basketball, right? It's funny. So few people go to Duke. I mean, Duke is its not one of those schools. Like, if you say what, who travels for college basketball, the schools that have a, a large alumni base. I mean, Duke only – Duke does not have – Duke is a small private school. It's not super small, but it, it's not a very large school. So you rarely run into, quote, Duke people who went to Duke. I mean, it's not many Duke fans, but, but they certainly have the type of players they've had. I mean, just even the one-and-dones that they had. And it started, of course, uh, back Christian Leitner, Bobby Hurley, those years. Um, and I think that the, in terms of Kyrie Irving, uh, even he only played like 15 games. They've had some names. They've had players that have gone on the pros that played well. Uh, and just, the, the, just Cameron, people watching that on TV, that's exciting. I mean, they've sort of defined what college basketball and where it's going. Uh, and Coach K's been around for so long. So I think you have a lot of fans that, that really, really like Duke, but they, uh, they're not alum, alumnus of the school, but they definitely travel in terms of going to these games. Um, but, you know, I'm... In terms of this Duke team, it's it's just it's frustrating because they are so talented, but they, they like they struggled against Georgia Tech. They were up sixty six to fifty. They were they were they were only up twenty nine or down twenty nine twenty seven at the end of the first half and won sixty six fifty three. And Jones came back for the game, but they haven't been shooting well at all. They uh, from three point shooting, it's actually the worst three pointing shoot Duke Duke team in history. They're shooting thirty percent on the year, uh, and Zion Williamson is. I mean, and Barrett is like shooting 31%. Zion's shooting like 29% from threes. Uh, they're not good, but if they don't just if they just don't shoot bad threes, they're still going to beat teams. Nobody can stop <laughs> this team. You know, Barrett is a great one-on-one player, very similar to like James Harden, driving in, uh, trying making all different types of plays. And Zion is just they have two unstoppable players. 
Cam Reddish, the other person, was, when they mentioned the Duke team this year coming in, it was like three great players. And some people thought Cam Reddish was the best player of all three. Yeah. And he certainly hasn't played like that at all this year. He's um, against uh, Pitt. He was four for 16, uh, three for 10 from threes. Against Georgia Tech, he was one for 11. Really hasn't played well this year. He's a third option. But if he starts to play where you think he could possibly play and Trey Jones stays healthy, I mean, Duke is definitely the favorite to win the championship. But um, it's, uh, it, it's just, it's just they're, they're mad. you can see where they can lose because if they keep shooting threes, they can't make threes, they might get upset. I mean, they've already lost to Syracuse at home and Gonzaga away. Um, and I thought this team was almost unbeatable. So it just shows that, I mean, Coach K's better get them focused and ready because the tournament, they're gonna, anything can happen. You're listening to Iron Sports. It's 95.9, the True Oldies channel. It's 7-Eleven. I'm Mike Balsamo. By the way, Ira Duke has less than 7,000 undergraduate students. You were saying how it's small. That is small. Tell us a little bit about, about Jeff Capel and, you know, what he's done. Well, that's weird. So the Pitt team is struggling. Pitt's been one of the worst teams in college basketball in the last four or five years. So they were able to get Jeff Capel, who was the assistant coach at Duke, who recruited this great recruiting class and last year's great recruiting class and the year before's great recruiting class. So it's pretty ironic to see Capel coaching against Coach K when he's coaching these players, which is he was the main recruiter to bring all those players in. So it was interesting. And, and the question is, and we'll talk about this, we get a long time talking about this, who's his successor to Coach K? And if Capel can turn Pitt around, Cable could do a great job he, with his Duke connections, his Duke roots. He might be the person that would come back to Duke whenever Coach K retires. But there's a, a lot of assistants that Coach K has that are out there coaching, uh, and uh, from Tommy Amaker and Chris Collins and Wojciechowski. There's a lot of coaches out there, and, and that Duke job is going to be the job. I mean, it's going to be a tough one to follow, but it, it is the prime job in college basketball. And when Coach K does step down, uh, so it's interesting to see Cable going to Pitt uh, and uh, and see what he can do with that program. You know, I, I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. That job is going to be the biggest shoes to fill of any job in sports. Uh, even Bill Belichick coming in after him is not as big of not as big of a a, a program and just uh, what's the word for it? Just just the distinguished title of coaching Duke. I I, I can't think of anything in sports that's going to be tougher for the first year for for whoever uh, does get that job. Tell us a little bit about the game itself, Ira, because uh, Duke did end up getting out of hand on this one and winning pretty easily. Yeah, I mean it, it, Duke just jumped to the early lead, and they and they and they really just just dominated the game and once and Duke's the type of team that uh, the one thing in college basketball with the way the fouling rules and everything it's really hard once you get a hard lead I think for some teams Pitt's not a good three-point shooting team so when they got down in the game they really they really couldn't stay in it and and it was it was I know it was 79 64 it was like one of those games that Duke was ahead by 17 the whole game it wasn't that exciting a game because they poured they were they were like 15 to 20 points, but they wouldn't blow it away and make it 30, but it was, it was sort of at that level. I was just mostly interested in seeing how Zion played, everything that you see him on TV, the hustle. He literally plays like he could get cut or taken out of the game. He is diving after ball. I, I, LeBron never did that. I mean, I, Kobe never did this. I mean, Michael Jordan did. Michael Jordan used to dive for balls, but he is on the floor all the time. He's hustling up and down the court. He is, his motor is going. Anybody who doesn't think he's going to be a star in the NBA, and there's a lot of people out there that still think Zion Williamson is not going to be this superstar. I mean, I think he is, uh, uh, he is a, one of the greatest college basketball players I've ever seen. I'd be shocked if he's not a first team all NBA player when he steps into the league. I, he's, he's that good. In the NBA game, like right now, he gets in foul trouble because there's five fouls. They call a lot of ticky-tack fouls in college basketball. But I think when he gets to the, he looks someone who his first year is going to have 25 points, 13 rebounds. Uh, he's going to be first-team All-NBA. 
So. Well, Notre Dame just got their second basket of the night. It's now 17-5. to five. Um, So, yeah, you can see uh, w- what this team is going to do. What do you think's wrong with Cam? And maybe not necessarily wrong with Cam Reddish, but you said before, and this, this was true, he was the name I was hearing a year ago. And, you know, it, it was only what, maybe the last six months where Zion really became the, the, um, the superstar of the group, maybe even less than that. So what do you think happened there? I think it's just hard to fit in. I mean, these guys, it, it, it's, it's hard enough to have two superstars on a team, but then to have three. Um, and these guys are in the AU. And when Cameron was on his team, he was, he was the star of that team. They're all stars of their own teams. It's just hard finding roles. They're young. And I, I think that they're used to shooting the ball all the time. He doesn't get the shots that he would have. He's only shooting 11 shots and 12 shots and not 20-some shots. So it's difficult, especially at his age. Um, and hopefully as the year gets on, I mean, it's still – February. I mean, he still has some time to, to develop, and he's had some good games. Uh, I think he's someone that Duke maybe, when the game starts, to try to get him scoring. It's sort of like what the Cavaliers did with Kevin Love when they had Kyrie and LeBron and they had Kevin mm-hmm. Love, where they started the game like running all these plays to get Love engaged in the game. Maybe Duke, when the game starts, to try to get Reddish involved early to get him involved in the game so he, he then can start scoring. But uh, I, he's he's going to be an important factor because they're going to need him to win the title. Uh, but he hasn't played well this year. Let's talk. Uh, you want to move on to um, this this Temple and Cincy game? I Temple is one of these weird schools that I feel like doesn't get talked about that much. Very prestigious university. It's right there in Philly, um, but you just don't hear much about the Temple Owls. So tell us a little bit about this game and what was the what was the arena like? Because I just don't know anybody who's ever been there. <laughs> Well, um, Coach Duff, Fran Dunphy, uh, we had on him on the show last year. He has 566 wins, 310 at Penn, 256 at Temple. Um, he has 65% winning percentage, one of the winningest coaches in the history of college basketball, and uh, a great career. Nine NCAA tournaments at Penn and seven at Temple. So 16 NCAA tournament appearances. Uh, and uh, it was it, he's at Temple's a school that I think that under John Cheney, they are in Philly. They're known to be a scrappy, hardworking players that he used to brought in. And this Temple team, too, is fun to watch. Very athletic. Uh, they played hard. And Cincinnati also played hard. It was, it was a great game. This game, unlike the Pitt game, was, was, was very close. Temple was leading most of the game. And Cincinnati came at the end. And this guy, Jaron Cumberland, for them, uh, uh, took on. I think Cincinnati's been like between 20 and 30 of the country. They're a team that's going to be probably, probably a five or six seed in the NCAA tournament, uh, and they won the game at, in Temple, 72-68. Uh, the Leah Course Center is, it used to be that all the schools in Philadelphia played at the Palestra. Penn played there, Temple played there, St. Joe's, LaSalle, and Villanova, and eventually they started all building their own on-campus gyms, leaving Penn as the only school that played at the Palestra. Temple built the Leah Course Center, uh, I think about 12, 13 years ago, and it's a, it's a nice, like, seven 8,000-seat gymnasium. Uh, it's very comfortable to watch the game. It was fun. Uh, good atmosphere. Uh, and uh, I think and the, and the Temple students are excited. Temple is much a, is more of a commuter school, so they don't have the on-campus students that are going to just flood the arena, like maybe, say, a Villanova would uh, mm. for a game in Villanova. But uh, it's, it's, uh, it's Philadelphia basketball. And it's fun because... Temple played at 12 o'clock. I saw that game, but some people were leaving that game to see Villanova play Seaton Hall at 2.30 because you could actually leave the game a little early, make the Villanova game, and people, <laughs> some people, the same people were at the, were at the game that Penn played Friday night. You could actually see Penn play, Villanova play, to have three basketball games in, this, in, in just a few hours. So that's what's so exciting about you know, going. Philadelphia has great college basketball. 
Yeah, no, it's definitely a hub for that kind of stuff, especially with the resurgence of Nova. Um, any any takeaways from the game itself? I think the takeaway for the game is that Temple's going to be one of those teams on the bubble, um, and they play in the American Conference. Houston's in that conference. A lot of these other teams, and these are mid-majors. When people are looking at the, your polls, I mean, this is when people, when they, they want to do the brackets and for the NCAA, start watching these teams. There are a lot of teams out there at these conferences that aren't in the ACC and the Big Ten that are going to do damage in the playoffs. I mean, when you watch a team like, like Cincinnati and Temple play, they can play with anybody. I mean, they could beat Duke. I mean, if Duke did play poorly. So the quality of the uh, player is spread out. Uh, there are there are talented players on all these teams, and some of these teams have experienced players that can shoot. Uh, so I, I think that uh, from the generally from that game and from Temple, and both those teams, Temple Cincinnati looks like they're safely in the tournament. Temple is probably going to be right on that bubble. They may be one of the final teams, whether in or out, to the tournament. And let's talk for a minute about uh, your good buddy and a good friend of Iron Sports, Mike Isolino's team, Robert Morris. Um, how they look? Oh, they look great. I mean, again, you said they're in first. 300 teams that play basketball out there, and they're different conferences, Division One. So if you win the conference, like the Northeast Conference, it seems like, uh, uh, St. Francis, New York, Long Island, Brooklyn, you, you hear these names all the time. You're watching ESPN, you see the, the ticker go down there. But Robert Morris is playing great. They're 7-1 in their conference. They're leading the conference by two games. And if you automate, the problem is that these conferences, that so you could win all your games in your conference, you're still not going to get an NCAA bid unless you win your tournament. Now, the way this tournament, this, this league does it, is that if you have your, the top seed, that you play all your games at home. So whoever the, the higher seed is gets home games, which seems fair. Instead of going to a neutral site, every game would be at Robert Morris to play. Mm-hmm. And, so, and also, you're also in these conferences now. If you win the regular season, you're guaranteed uh, an entrance into the NIT tournament. Not as prestigious NCAA, but still you're guaranteed something. So it's it's something to win, and and, and Robert Morris looks great. I mean, they look like a team that's uh, that's going to win this conference. Uh, they're playing. They're building a fifteen million dollar new gym, which is pretty amazing for a, a school the size of Robert Morris. <laughs> yes, and they're is. playing the practice facility <laughs> now, but. Um, no, it's going to be exciting to watch how Robert Morris does. Of course, I, my friend Mike Isolino is the coach there, so it's, it's, you have vested interest to see him do well. But uh, they're, they're, it's, I love watching bas- college basketball. I love watching basketball. I love watching college basketball. I tell everyone who has like, kids that college basketball is what they should go to. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's different than going to the Heat games. Go to a good – go to a Miami Hurricane game Go to because you can sit much closer. I mean, you can sit 10 rows for like 20 bucks and watch <laughs> – basketball and if you're bringing your kids there it's a way to be engaged and i'll tell you what college basketball players are signing autographs are talking to little kids throwing balls around they're not they're not the miami heat that are have security all around them and they're like don't say anything to players it's, I, I i'm amazed that when my friends have these you know kids like four or five years old and they're taking them to pro basketball games i'm like take them to a great college basketball game because they're exciting you have cheerleaders and mascots and all those things and you get to sit much closer to the court. So I know I saw four games this week. I, I just love watching them. I'm a humongous basketball fan, and I just love watching it. So. Uh, you're listening to Iron Sports at 722. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Let's, um, you mentioned earlier you know, having a vested interest in Robert Morris. Well, I went to college in Tennessee, and I, I've just always rooted for the Vols in football. Uh, football, basketball, doesn't matter. And the football teams had a rough decade or so, but the basketball team's usually competitive. We know what the women do, um, but this year might be the year for Tennessee, and you wanted to see some of it. Well, I haven't seen Tennessee play all year. So they were playing Vanderbilt, I think it was on Wednesday night, and I wanted to catch that game, and I, I was 
uh, and it was an exciting game against Vanderbilt. They were they were they were they were up in the game by a lot, and then they blew the lead. They were down seventy six seventy with a minute to go, and. Uh, the rule that I cannot stand in college basketball is these intentional flagrants at the end of the game where it, where the Tennessee Vanderbilt player gets the rebound, but they call a, a flagrant foul on him to get the rebound, which it should have been, I think, the foul on the Tennessee player. So then Tennessee gets the ball, shoots two free throws, gets the ball again, gets the ball, and then so it's now 76-74. But at the end of the game, it was crazy. I mean, each team had like eight shots to win it, um, and, it was, and then it went to overtime, and, then, and Tennessee ended up winning the game. 95.9 The True Oldies Channel, 725. I'm Mike Balsamo, and we are back in business. What'd you trip over the phone cord, Ira? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, let's talk about some of your dislikes across college basketball. What, what kind of gets under your skin? I, there's one thing. There's this thing they're doing in college basketball now with these display boards. And I love advertising, and I love signs, and I remember going and watching The Natural with uh, Robert Redford, and you watch people uh, you know, with the boards in the outfield advertising some old companies that don't exist anymore. But, and you see that in the, the boards of games, but somehow someone convinced college basketball teams, it's not like this is the pro games, but to have their LED boards right on the court so they're right on the court, which the pros do, but they keep, they keep, it's like neon back and forth. They keep changing. And it is really distracting. And I, on TV, I find it distracting watching on TV because you're watching a game and you're seeing this, this distracted board that keeps changing. Now, if they keep it just like says one thing or one ad when the ball goes down, but it's like moving, it's like a moving screen. And in, in person, it is very distracting when you're at the game because you're looking across and it even affects the players because the court is changing and the lights are going and you can see players are like, blinded sometimes when the ball goes and they pass it and they see and i just i can't believe that college basketball can keep this up they have to tell the teams like just put one ad up or one thing that they're advertising and don't keep rotating it so much and and certainly don't have it in motion while the game's on because it's right at eye level it has to be and i've talked to some of the players you know i talked to the Robert Moore players and talked to some of the temple players and I asked them and they're like yes it is distracting they find it a little distracting during the game because it is so bright and it changes so much and I hope that next year, I mean, they probably have rules this year, but I think it is, it is taking away from the, the experience of to watch a game on TV and to watch a game in, on, uh, uh, watch a game in person. Anything else? Flagrant fouls. This thing in college basketball, I, they are calling flagrants over nothing, where it's if you get, somehow get your hit in the head by an inadvertent, just somehow hit in the head, they have to go look at the videotape, they stop the game, then you can call two fouls, they get a shot, the ball. I, these are not fouls. I mean, definitely flagrant intentional fouls should be penalized. But it seems like these teams, like if I'm losing at the end of the game, and the, t- the coach can't say this, but you would just like run into another player with your head, and then suddenly you're going to get the ball back. Like mm. it seems like every single play, and the stoppages are just it takes forever because the refs then run over to the sideline. They have to get this little computer that they have. They have to look at it. It's the, the flow of the game. is just, it goes on and on. And it's like every single possession. And as much as people don't like replay in pro football, this replay in college basketball at the end of the games just slows these games down. So I think that's wrong. And the other thing is the over-reliance on three-point shots. 
these teams, these players are going down just firing threes, and you see it in high school, too. It's just work the ball. Like, that's why people say, oh, I hate the Golden State Warriors. How can you hate the Warriors? They shoot a lot of threes, but they're moving. They have motion. Like, I love, that's what basketball is all about. These teams now are going one-on-one, one-on-one. The shot clock goes from 30 to whatever, and then they take these terrible shots. And then the pros, they can make three-point shots, but a lot of these college players <laughs> can't consistently make them, so they just keep shooting and shooting and just seeing percentages like three for 24 and two for 26. These teams are too lazy to work the ball, to pass, have good offenses, and, and they're just firing threes up. And they're giving up. Like a lot of times instead of driving the ball, it's getting two points. They're throwing the ball around, taking bad three-point shots. I don't think the game is as smooth. I, it's just better when teams pass the ball and run offenses rather than just shoot threes the whole game. You know, so those are my pet peeves. We'll, we'll segue into the NBA, but that brings me to a thought because how do you feel about this James Harden run? Because I, I feel like it's the same way. I like... Every plays isolation. He gets a pick and 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 bombs a three. You know what I mean? It's not. I I love the ballet of basketball, working it. You know, getting guys out of position. And I don't feel like Houston does that. They don't get that many wins either. Well, I think what James Harden is doing is bad. Everybody's watching him play, and it's not good for basketball. He's scoring forty points with no assist. Like no one's ever passing the ball, so it's completely ISO offense. And he and didn't have somebody pass to him in three weeks. Rules. He didn't get an assist from someone else in over three weeks. Like that's it's, ridiculous. Um, it, it's absolutely ridiculous, and it's and and you got, and it's not sustainable in the playoffs. I mean, clearly now they bring Chris Paul back. And part of it was, but Houston is D'Antonio's offense and how they run and how the NBA's played. But people watch Harden and then they try to replicate him, and they're taking step back threes and they're driving the ball, and it's like you're not James Harden. It's different. I mean, Michael Jordan and Kobe. Like, look at Kobe. I mean, Kobe was not like this. Like, this is at a level that we have never seen that this complete ISO ball where everybody just clears out. And I just think that teams are like, you know, in the playoffs, they're going to shut him down. And that's why he, he, Houston has played poorly in the playoffs because Harden does get beat when teams are like, okay, we have to win this game. We're going to make James Harden shoot one for 16 from threes. And he gets tired out, and they know how to work him. And during the regular season, Teams don't seem to be playing him that aggressively. Now, he is a great player, and he's phenomenal, but this is not a sustainable offense to win a title. And that's why Houston, and I don't think Houston is going to make it to the Western Conference Finals, uh, no. even with Paul and Capella back. No, I, I, I don't think so either. Yeah, it's, it, Like you said, it's not sustainable. And a good team is going to, to be able to shut them down. You know, it's one thing when you're dropping 60 on the Knicks. Good luck doing that against some of the better Western Conference competitors. Um, Ira, I would call it the worst-kept secret in sports. <laughs> Anthony Davis just did not want to be in New Orleans. He did not plan on signing an extension. So it looks like he's going to be getting shipped out of town. Tell us about this. Well, he signed with Rich Paul Clutch Sports, which is a LeBron James agency. Which So everybody assumed he wanted to go to the Lakers, uh, but never had made an announcement. I was down in New Orleans twice over the past month for the Steeler game and then for the championship game last week. Uh, people down there say we should trade Anthony Davis. I was shocked. They go, don't you want to keep him? No, he's not really there. He's, because the team is, is, is out of the playoffs. They still potentially have a chance to make it, but they're not winning. And, but he has another year on his contract. And so people were waiting for him to make that demand. Now, he made it publicly, which was now he could get fined for that because you're not technically allowed to make a public demand. You could do it internally but not mm. make it public. And what his demand was not to be traded. It just said he told he's eligible for a five-year, 
$240 million contract extension at the end of this year. He told the team, I'm not interested. And when my contract's up next year, I'm not signing, which is pretty amazing because that means he's actually forfeiting maybe about $60, $70 million because another team can't sign him to that five-year $240 million deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, he made that announcement to them, and now we'll see what happens. And now there's 10 days toward the trading deadline. It's been moved up. Uh, the team that most likely people think would get Davis, there's two teams, Lakers because of LeBron and also the Celtics because the Celtics have more to offer. They have all these draft picks they can offer. The problem is the Celtics can't bring Davis in until after the end of the year because the way their contracts are structured uh, with Kyrie Irving, they can't make that trade now. So the only teams that could make the trade for Davis before the trading deadline are the Lakers and like almost every other teams in the league. So the pressure now is on the Lakers. Do the Lakers now finally want to give up the Kuzmas, the Ingrams, the Hearts, their young core group to get Anthony Davis. They were not willing to do that to get Paul George. They were not willing to do that to get Kawhi Leonard. But will they be willing to do this to get Anthony Davis? Uh, uh, you know, a seven-foot player who dribbles the ball and passes the ball and certainly one of the greatest players in the game. Uh, and someone teamed with LeBron, another unselfish player they could they could they would need other parts around that but the lakers have been wanting to keep this young core together and bring another free agent in if they're nervous that they're not going to get Kawhi leonard in uh, at the free agency for next year this might be something that they want they they finally will give up their young core ira would you do it and this is like to me i don't know if i would say the trade was uh lonzo kuzma and a first would you do that trade at first at the beginning of the year i said no um, the Lakers are six and ten without LeBron. Uh, I like this team. I think they play hard. I don't think LeBron likes this team. I think if LeBron wants, I think LeBron wants to make this trade. You have LeBron. You have to keep him happy. You have to make the trade. I know that sounds weird. He wants he wants to coach out, but you have LeBron in his final like three or four years of, of elite basketball. Anthony Davis is in his prime. Is maybe the best player in basketball. You can put those two players in. Bring other players in. I don't like how Brandon Ingram is playing. I would hate to give up Kyle Kuzma, but he's going to be the center of the deal. Yeah. I'd make the trade if I'm the, if I'm the Pelicans in New Orleans because I think Kuzma is going to be an all-star. I, I really like him a lot. But I think at this point, this is, I think this is what LeBron wants, and I think you've got to do what LeBron wants because if you don't do what LeBron wants, he's going to pout, not be good. you really got to make this trade for LeBron. And so I think the Lakers, I, but the Pelicans might say, no, we're going to wait until the end of the year and then do that trade with Boston where they get all the draft picks and they might get Tatum and Brown or whatever. So the, the trade could be better from Boston. Now, Anthony Davis is going to say, I'm only going to the Lakers. I won't go to Boston. So you can trade for me, but I won't go play there. So that's one other thing he could do to say, look, anybody can trade for me, but I'm not going to play for the team if you want me there. So you can trade a lot of talent, but I'm going to sign with the Lakers after the end of next year. So that's going to be his leverage, and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I always worry, and you know, we can move on from this after this, I always worry about players like Anthony Davis. Now, obviously, he's exceptional, but players like that, and I go back to Kevin Love, and before that, David Lee on the Knicks, there's a lot of guys who, when they play on teams that can't shoot, <laughs> that can drop 20 and 10 every single night. You know, we saw David Lee do it because the Knicks just shot 35% from the field. He scooped rebounds and put balls back up. Not saying that Anthony Davis is that, but to me, I don't know. I, I don't. He's not in my top five players in the NBA, although the numbers would dictate it. Uh, what do you think? I think he puts. I think he'll put up great numbers wherever. I'm nervous about his injuries. He seems to. He gets injured every year, and they're different injuries. They're not like he's one bad knee, but. 
he has a thumb, like he's out now for two weeks with his thumb, but it's always something that he yeah. gets injured with. And it seems like he's, as someone who plays fantasy basketball and well aware of what he puts up, I mean, he's consistently doing like 60 games a year. He's not playing 82 or even 70. And I think that's a concern if you're going to make a trade like this. Is he going to stay? Is he someone who's actually going to stay healthy an entire year and you'll be able to use him? Because you are going to deplete your, your bench in terms of how you do these things. But, I mean, this LeBron thinks he can make it work, and he thinks he can bring other free agents in that are next year to play, which he hasn't been able to do yet. Uh, but I guess that's a magic thing since also. Lakers play there, so to play, to play in Los Angeles. Um, I think it'll be real interesting to see. Watch these next, uh, this next week is really bad. We'll do, next week we'll have one day before the trade deadline. So next week's show, we'll have, there'll be a lot of rumors going around. Well, they're going to have to do something, LA, because the Warriors are on fire and they're a little turmoil uh, early on in the season, but they seem to be clicking, I. Yeah, I mean, the Warriors, the year started, they started out slow, but now they've won 10 straight, they've won four in a row. I watched them play the Wizards on Friday night, and then I watched them also. Then I went and saw I saw a Saturday night, and then they played on or Thursday night, and then on Saturday night they played uh, the Celtics in a game that probably is potentially a matchup of the, the, the two best teams that are, who are going to meet for the NBA Finals. Uh, very exciting game. Uh, Cousins is fitting in perfectly, as I expected. 15 points, 8 rebounds, 3 assists, 2 steals. Durant had 33, Curry had 24, and I think what Cousins has done, and I said this, I, I said that I think he's going to m- get the team focused because they want to make this work. Everyone said, you can't put Cousins in, it's not going to work, it's too much this. I think now they're focused. You don't hear about Durant and Draymond Green fighting. You don't hear, Clay Thompson's had these monster games. The team is now playing like playoff basketball. So anything what Cousins has done, being out almost the whole, the whole first part of the year, now coming in, he's not just helped the team because he's playing better, he's helped the team because he's got these other guys focused on trying to make this work out and do well. Uh, on the other side, uh, for the Celtics, their problem, I mean, Gordon Hayward, and this is one of the problems they have, they've made so many great moves in Boston, and part of his injury, he was a star player at bought in for the Utah. They bought him last year, he got hurt in the first game, and then for his ankle. He came back this year, and he's just not played well. He's averaging 10 points, four rebounds, three assists. This is a guy who averaged 22 at Utah. Uh, the Warriors said he's a shell of himself, and they make comments like that. And uh, and, he, and he, they're paying him thirty million dollars a year. He's one of the highest paid players in the NBA. Uh, so it's not really working out in terms of what the Celtics. But the Celtics are playing better. Kyrie, since he made the statement that he wants to be the, called out the other players, then players criticize him. Since then, he's become much more focused. Uh, this was a great game. I mean, the end of the game was just uh, Kyrie missed some shots. Uh, Morris missed a couple shots. Draymond Green made a, got a key rebound, and Clay Thompson drove well uh, and, and ended up winning the game. Uh, but it, but it, was, it was a very exciting close game. But for the Warriors to go into Boston and win that, uh, I think it was, just shows you how well the Warriors are playing right now. And uh, they are definitely now the favorites to win the title. And they've been always in the favorites. And people were like, well, they've been losing some games. But there's just nobody in the West that I think that's been like last year, Houston played really well. Houston was the one seed last yeah. year. This year, you just don't see another team. Denver is the number two seed. I don't think Denver's taken a game from the Warriors. So, <laughs> but, uh, um, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's going to be tough out West. I mean, maybe Oklahoma City could make it a little bit of a series. They're having a decent year. Um, speaking about having a decent year that I didn't really see coming, it's Indiana, and it's about to get a whole lot harder now with uh, Victor Oladipo going down. Yeah, I mean, uh, they were the third seed. They were playing great. 
this team, uh, that you saw them in the, they took LeBron to seven games last year. Uh, they came back. Oladipo has found a home. Uh, they are, David Stone's doing a great job coaching there. They, this, the Indiana looked like they were a great team, very play team basketball, fun to watch. Oladipo was a star and a terrible, like, it's like a quad injury. He's going to be out for the rest of the year. Um, they're going to fall back. I mean, they're not going to be, there's going to, one of the, it's either, either be Toronto, Milwaukee, uh, Philly or Boston making it to the NBA Finals. Um, and I think it'll be Boston or Toronto. Uh, Philly and Milwaukee have, still have other problems, but I, I think that it'll be either Toronto or Boston. But those teams, I think Toronto and Boston are the, te- are the two teams that were the biggest threat to the Warriors. If they get to the Finals, if Boston's playing well and they and Kyrie's a superstar and Tatum's playing great and Jalen Brown and maybe Hayward starts to improve and you have Al Horford who's playing great, they do have that star power to match up with the Warriors. And Toronto, with Paulie Leonard playing at a very high level, uh, they might also, in great team basketball, might be a team that could. But there's no way Indiana will... Indiana will be lucky to stay in the playoff hunt at this moment, losing all the depot. Yeah, I mean, as someone who follows the Heat, it, it, you never root for an injury, but this could help the Heat maybe get a home game, I mean, a home series, knocking one of these top teams out of there. Because I, I agree with you now, it's going to be really tough going uh, for Indiana. You know, everyone thought it was going to be really tough going for this team. And if I told you... You know, obviously, Golden State's uh, won their last 10. If I told you there was the second best last 10 games was the Brooklyn Nets, I think most people would say you were crazy because you're not watching. Uh, Brooklyn is 8-2 and two over their last 10. They're in the sixth seed. I had these guys as like a 15-20 win team. They're playing really good, I. Well, Kenny Atkinson is the coach, and when he was named, he really did have a lot of experience. He had bounced around the NBA a little bit, young coach. Uh, one of the greatest coaching guys I've ever seen. They're 27-23. and 23. Um, they're in the sixth seed. This is a team that should be in the lottery. I mean, the Knicks are 10 and 35 and, and those other teams. I mean, they've lost, you can't even name a player on the, on the Nets. And most people can name a player on the Nets. And they lost their two best players, Spencer Dinwiddie and Chris LeVert, who people don't even know that they're so good. Uh, <laughs> they are an amazing team. They are, they play hard. They play well. I've watched them play a few games. Um, truly one of the success stories. If Kenny Atkins is not the coach of the year, I mean, they should just retire the award. They're, he's taking a team that really should have seven or eight wins right now to 27. Uh, one of the best coaching jobs. I, he, is not, he has to be the coach of the year, unless they completely collapse and lose every game. Uh, it is really amazing what they're doing in, in Brooklyn. And, and maybe it's to their detriment in terms of they're not trying to lose, they're not trying to tank in order to get a, a high lot get like the Knicks are doing. But it is a shame that people don't realize how great this Kenny Atkins is. I, I could see him I mean, Brooklyn is a destination eventually, and they could get some pieces because people want to play in New York. So, but if you're looking, if you're the Knicks right now in the Nets, I think the Knicks wish they had Atkinson as their coach. Oh, absolutely, Ira. In their last 14 games, they have three losses. Those losses to the first place Bucks, the tied for first place Raptors, and the Celtics. They beat. Everybody, they beat everyone they're supposed to, and they beat teams they're not supposed to, and that's why you're right. Kenny Atkinson got to be coach of the year at this point. Um, you mentioned it earlier. The, the Knicks are really a joke. The Bulls, the Suns, the Cavaliers. This is a, the fight for Zion, if I'm concerned. Well, they're totally now. They're really tanking. I mean, the Bulls, Suns, Knicks, and Cavs. Uh, those four teams are purposely losing. They're not even playing their players. Um, they're sitting. They're sitting their starters. It is 
it is borderline embarrassing at this level what they're trying to do. Um, the Knicks have players like Enos Canner that should be playing that aren't playing. Uh, the Suns have resting Booker at eight. And I mean, any play, anytime you have it, they're sitting for weeks at a time. I mean, anyone who plays fantasy basketball sees what's going on with these teams. Uh, it's really, it, this is a problem in basketball. You don't see this in football. You certainly you might see a little bit about it in baseball, but at least play your players. And they're not even willing to play those. It's not a big deal because these players are so bad. These teams are so bad and no one cares. But it is, it is, it is not, it is not good for the game when, and I mean, you could, it's just not good when these teams are purposely not playing their best players. No, I, I agree with you. And it, it's getting bad. And this is, I feel like this is what happens when there's a superstar. You know, when there's, well, a superstar in the making, or maybe three or four coming up, this is what teams do. You know, there's been a lot of weird drafts. You know, we haven't had great talent coming out in, in the last decade. There's one player a draft, maybe. And you're lucky if, if that guy's even a superstar, let alone, you know, a 10-year starter. So I think they're, you know, everyone's foaming at the mouth to get to get a piece of uh, some of these young kids. Um, the Heat... This is just the most 500 team I've ever... I, I, I like a lot of the players, but I have no idea what to make of them, and I can't really see them winning a series unless they get a home game and a good break. Well, this is the next the crucial time for the Heat right now. They have the two home... They have two games, and they go six on the road. And I think this is really going to find their season and where they go. Um, if they... They go two and six over the next eight games, and they're going to have trouble. Uh, they'll probably be an A seed and get knocked down in the first round. But if they can, they can uh, put it together and and, and win games. And, and as Richardson's key for them, Dwayne Wade is healthy and been playing you know almost every game this season. Uh, it's interesting. And when Drogic comes back, Whiteside getting him play, it'll be really interesting to see where he goes. They're well coached. They of course. Uh, but it's uh, they're they're 500 now, and they could go either way. This 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 road trip, they haven't played well on the on the road at all. And this road trip could be uh, they could they really need to, to to at least go 500 on this road trip. They could really go for a uh, like a February that they had last year <laughs> when they just you know yeah. they, they win like uh, you know uh, 20 and three runs, you know things like that. That's what they could use right now because that would definitely get them up into that top four, top half of the Eastern Conference. It's Iron Sports 95. The True Oldies Channel 745. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, you're the tennis guy around here, and you were all excited about the Australian Open uh, last week. Tell us about it. Well, it's exciting because you have to stay up to 3.30 and watch it. I mean, you time your <laughs> schedule. But, I mean, this, is, this, this time in tennis is tremendous. I mean, you have, you have like three. You have Tiger, Jack, and another great golfer. I don't know whoever you want to say uh, that playing at the, or, or Watson. It, it, the three best golf players in the world are playing right now. I mean, remember, Pete Sampras had 14 majors. Now now with Djokovic winning the Australian, he has 15. Nadal has 17. The Federer has 20. They're the three greatest players. After they retire, no one's even going to come close. Uh, it is just uh, amazing. And, and Djokovic playing Nadal in the finals, and I, as I predicted they were going to play. Nadal was cruising to the finals. Uh, he had been out uh, since last U.S. Open with injuries, but came back and was playing great in this tournament. Hadn't dropped a set. Uh, and Djokovic only lost two sets, so they were both playing really, really, really well. I mean, Djokovic's last two matches one was like 6-1, 4-1, and then he was 1-6-0, 6-2, 6-2 in the semis. And, uh, you know, the betting odds were it was pretty even. People thought Nadal was playing even a little bit better than Djokovic, even though in the last eight meetings on hard courts, Djokovic is 8-0 against Nadal. He's won 17 out of the uh, sets, straight sets, and uh, he's only he's broken Nadal 27 times. Nadal's only broken him twice. But uh, this match, I got up early, 3.30 in the morning, and it was just not 
a mess. <laughs> I mean, Djokovic played, and I, and not saying the doll played poorly. He did not play well, but he didn't play poorly. Uh, Novak Djokovic might have played, as John Macro said, the greatest match in the history of tennis on hard courts. I mean, that is something to say. The greatest match of all, considering the opponent he was playing. I mean, Nadal was hitting shots that other players couldn't get. Djokovic wasn't just getting those shots, but mm-hmm. hitting them back harder. Uh, and, and Macro made another comment. He's like, it's like a welterweight hitting a heavyweight. Welterweight throws his best punch he possibly could throw, and the heavyweight just takes that punch and punches it back. Uh, Djokovic played great. Djokovic was so fast. Uh, on the court, his movement, his shot selection. He won 20 at, at one point, 20 won 21st service points, and he wasn't serving aces. He's not serving 100 million miles. He just took control of the points. He played tennis how it should be played. Uh, it's tremendous. And, he, and also, he broke the doll early in each set. At 1-1, he broke the doll to go up 2-1. Then it was 3-1 win. That set 6-3. In the second set, he broke up early to go up 3-2. to go up three two. And then it was 15:30, and then it's like the doll's got to get back in these matches. I mean, they played uh, six years ago a match that went six hours long. I watched the whole match. This one, you're like waiting for Joe, for Nadal to. You know, the great thing about tennis is you can lose a set 6-0 and then come back and win another set 7-6 and then be even. So you're thinking Nadal's going to come back, and at that point, Nadal missed the forehand. And Djokovic just screamed. I mean, just missed one shot, and he went up 4-2 in that set, easily winning that set 6-2, and then the fifth set. Uh, again, it was 1-1, and uh, he broke the doll up to go up 2-1, and, uh, and then it was 3-2, and then he ended up winning, uh, winning 6-2 in the third, uh, breaking the doll in the final game. I mean, it was just tremendous tennis. Doll had been serving great. Doll didn't serve poorly. It wasn't like making double falls, not getting first serves in. It's just that Djokovic, who just took control of the points, he had, 20, had only nine unforced errors. 34 winners. The doll had 28 unforced errors, but they really, when they say unforced errors, it was mainly just Djokovic was hitting just great shots left and right. Uh, just a tremendous match. Djokovic right now uh, potentially could, you know, you're, you're setting up for a great year. Federer's going to certainly be playing. Um, and uh, this is the golden era. Tennis will never be better than it is now. And uh, Djokovic right now is making the claim to be the greatest of all time. If he keeps winning these majors, he's 31, the doll's 32, and Federer's 36. French Open's next. The Dolls won 11 French Opens. Um, and if Djokovic can win, if Djokovic beats the Doll with the French, then he would be the favorite to win the Grand Slam. But it's pretty amazing because a year ago, he had elbow surgery. The Australian Open last year, he didn't play in. And people thought his career was over. He, had, he fired all his teammates. He fired I mean, his teammates. He fired his coach. He fired his trainers. Uh, they said that his wife was causing problems. And now he's back playing the best tennis of his life. Uh, which is exciting. And Nadal said, look, I have been out of tennis. I, I was surprised to even get to the final. So Nadal said, you know, I'm feeling healthy now. So the French Open's going to be great. Federer probably won't play the French. And then they're going to go to uh, Wimbledon and then the U.S. Open. So it'll be a great year in tennis. And uh, one last tennis note in terms of that is TFO made it to the quarterfinals uh, against Nadal. And uh, that was the best finish for American men. And for someone who's 20 years old, it's going to be great. We're going to see what TFO does the rest of the year. He has a great game to play well with the French, uh, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open. Ira, has there been anybody in golf, and I don't think a lot of people know these stats, there hasn't been someone more underrated in golf over the last two years than Justin Rose. You look at his numbers, 21 starts, he made 20 cuts, 13 top 10s, and three wins in that in that amount of time. So he wins at a one in seven clip, and he did it again this weekend. Well, it was a great field. I mean, there were great a, field. Jason Day was in it. Jordan Spieth, Tiger, 
Um, uh, Phil wasn't there, but I mean, in terms of the overall field, it was one of the best that you're going to have this year that are, are non-major. And uh, Rose just ran away. I mean, he he was at 21 under and Scott 19 under. It was nice to see Adam Scott play really well though, because he's a great player. He's won the Honda Classic. Uh, but uh, um, but it was just Rose played great, and, and he's definitely underrated. I mean, he's not the Rory McIlroy, not the Flash, but he's he's been number one in the world, and he's claiming to it. So it'll be as again, golf is great, and he's like one of these players that if Justin Rose won two majors this year, people would be like, Justin Rose won two majors, what a shock! He's the number one player in the world, he's playing better than everyone else. I mean, it's not a surprise that he would would win two majors. He was literally, I mean, next to Brooks Kepka, he was the most successful player last year. You know, if you're just looking at the stats and really nobody talks about him, how'd your boy Tiger do? Well, I watched Tiger play on Thursday and Friday, and he looks like, like, the great thing with Tiger was this, is like he finished and he finished 20th, he was 10 under, the leader was a 21 under, he shot par almost at 70, 70, 70, 71, 67. He didn't make his putts, uh, but he drove well. He looked good. I, I, anything, my takeaway from Tiger is this, is that he looked like he played really, really well, just missed a lot of putts, and looked healthy. Was hitting shots. Was at 31 for 56 from the fairways. Uh, he was 30th in strokes to green, and and he just putted. He didn't putt well, but it was he didn't seem upset about his game. I don't think anyone expected him to win this. He's certainly built for the majors. I mean, his goal is his goal is clearly to win the Masters. I mean, so everything he's doing this is practice, <laughs> and and he's and he's, and he's laser eyed on these majors. So I, he seemed really pleased. I listened to all the interviews. He likes it. He feels great. He's practicing now. He's healthy. Uh, and uh, and I and I, he missed, he makes a few more shots and he's like sixteen under instead of uh, ten under. He, he, his putting wasn't off. Clearly, he's going to get his, his putting back, uh, get better feel for the putting. But uh, I, I think last year this time the expectations were so low for Tiger, and this year like oh we just won uh, the, the, the tournament last year. He's ready to go. But I think he's just building up for the Masters. Um, and every other tournament is just for him to get better and improve so he could peak at the Masters time. Speaking of getting ready for the Masters, do you have an ex, uh, expectation of what he'll play leading up to that? Well, it's interesting. I'm telling you, we talked about this a little bit. Pebble Beach is this week, so they're skipping Pebble Beach, and then he, he's going to skip Pebble Beach, and a lot of the other players are too. But the way they move the tournament, the Genesis is in Riviera. I'll be at that tournament in L.A., um, he's, and that's his tournament for his charity, so he has to play that tournament. So he'll play that. And then there's World Golf Championship in Mexico City, which everyone says he has to play because he gets there's no cut. So he gets all those points. So if you're qualified for it, which he has, then you should play in it. So he plays in that. And he doesn't play three weeks in a row because then the Honda Classic is next. And even if he did play, I just then he did, but if he was thinking about it, I'm going to play Honda, uh, Bay Hill, Arnold Palmer's class, uh, tournament is in Orlando the following week. He's won that eight times. He's going to play that tournament. So, and then after that is a players championship because they move the players around so that in the players is the fifth major. Mm-hmm. So you have these tournaments, the Riviera, and then you have World Golf Championship, Honda, Bay Hill, and the players. He's not playing all those tournaments. He's probably going to miss one, if not two of those tournaments. I don't see him playing the Honda. I know it's his home tournament, but it just, it's hard to imagine him not playing in Riviera in the World Golf and then playing four weeks in a row or missing Bay Hill. It's unfortunate for the Honda how the schedule worked out. Um, but uh, since they moved the, the World Golf Championships from Doral to Mexico City, um, I don't know what this field's going to shape up like. You're going to see like Garcia and some of the Europeans that don't that don't qualify the World Golf, they'll play in it. But the tippy-top players like Spieth and Day, I don't think are going to come to the Honda, and I don't think Phil will or some of these other players. If you're qualified for the World Golf, you would not. I don't, I don't see them 
going then and playing the Honda after that. Ira, you know I love the Honda Classic. I've been to, geez, probably 30 or to 40 rounds at the Honda, and I knew once the schedule came out last year for how this was going to shape up, like, this is going to be bad. <laughs> We're going to lose a lot of talent at this tournament. It's unfortunate. Uh, of course, I'll still be going out there, though. It's Iron Sports 754. Time always gets away from us. This is 95.9, the true oldies channel. My man, Mo, the greatest closer of all time, Ira. I didn't think he was going to get 100% because I thought there'd be a salty fan in there. I mean, a salty writer, and they also always say... You know, some guys won't vote for the guys they know that are going to get in to give votes to other people. So I wasn't expecting 100%, but congratulations to Mo, and he deserves it. Well, finally they did. I mean, this, this whole non-100% thing is ridiculous. I mean, Ken Griffey Jr. was at 99.33. Three voters did put him in. Uh, Tom Seaver was at 98%. Nolan Ryan was at 98%. Ty Cobb, we're going back to 98%. I mean, can I, how about Hank Aaron? 97%. So there were nine writers that didn't put Hank Aaron on the first ballot for the Hall of Fame. Nine writers for Hank Aaron. I mean, it, doesn't, it gets as ridiculous. Greg Maddox in 2014, 16, 16 writers, 97% didn't put him in. Uh, Johnny, how about, I mean, you can go back to Babe Ruth. <laughs> 11 writers didn't put him in. I mean, this whole idea that, will, can I say Willie Mays, there were 23 writers that didn't put him on the first ballot. Crazy. Like this whole non-unanimous on the first ballot is ridiculous. If you're a star, we know who you are. Marin Rivera is the greatest reliever by far in the game. He's a class act. Uh, there was no reason why he shouldn't be 100%. So he, he should be in. Roy, Roy Holiday got in at 85%. Very interesting. I thought his percentage was pretty high uh, because he only won 203 games and a 280 ERA. But anyone knows about Holiday knows that he was, he was a dominant, dominant. Six dominant years pitcher. of being the best, best pitcher, pitcher in baseball. Six, seven years. Yeah. And he got in. And, and Edgar Martinez. Uh, 85%. He was the greatest DH of all time, and he uh, it was his last year to get in, and I think the movement with all the statistics was that he should get in. And then Mark Mike Messina was in his sixth year, and he got 76% of the vote and got in. Uh, 270 wins, 368 ERA, uh, great career with the Orioles, great career with the Yankees. Um, four really good players that I think I deserving to be in the Hall of Fame. So you, you do like Moose. See, like I, I'm a Yankee fan. I love Mike Messina. I don't really think he's a Hall of Famer. I, I just, to me, a Hall of Famer is somebody that you feared, and especially with, with a pitcher, he was never the best pitcher in baseball for even a season. He was never really top three. Very consistent. Obviously, you know that's why he's pushing three hundred wins. But to me, the Hall of Fame is for greatness, and I don't know, in my opinion, if Moose was there. I. I think he was the lead starter. I, I put him there for this reason. He was the number one starter for the Orioles and the number one starter for the Yankees uh, when they were both really winning games. I, I, th I think he was borderline. I agree with you. The 270 wins, the way that wins are, are done today, I think we're, we're, I think when you're seeing pitchers now that are going to finish their careers with 175 wins and people look 270, like that's crazy mm. that he's so many more wins. I know wins are a weird stat, but I think, I think it, it puts me in the shove. I, it's, it's definitely a tough one, but he pitched a lot of playoff games. I think he, he was borderline to get in, but I felt like he, he should definitely get in. I, I will like, can we jump to one other guy who got in for the veterans committee? Sure. Harold Baines was the, is the worst selection I think ever in, the, in my short period of time in the Hall of Fame of watching this. Hit 384 home runs, 2,800 hits. They have this like veterans committee, and there's only 16 people that can put you in. Now you're off the ballot. He, the most he ever got was 9% of the vote. So he went from getting oh I'm sorry six percent of the vote. He only got MVP votes four times, and twelve <laughs> exactly. put him in because his his uh, 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 owner Reinsdorf of the White Sox 
Mike, that was one of the 16, and his, his manager, La Russa, was the other one of the 16. And I think there's got to, they got to change this. I mean, it was these committees were put on for some people that were maybe overlooked and they were going back. But I think today you have 10, 10 years to be on it. Uh, there could maybe, I just think that for him to get in, he clearly, Harold Baines was never an elite player, and he got in on so he'll be coming in on the same class, and i just not deserving at all. I mean, you compare him to other players like Andy Dan Slyke. I mean, there's like 50 other players that are clearly not Hall of Famers, and his stats are worse than theirs are. And just because he was able to get 12 people to put him on, uh, I don't think it's fair. Uh, Ira, I think that most people that really know baseball and sports have completely written off the validity of the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's a joke. These The writers are all biased. Um, yeah, something like this, like... There's so many guys, and I, I like Harold Baines. He's not a Hall of Famer. It's like you said, four MVP votes ever. <laughs> like, come on. It, it, it's a joke, and I wish it wasn't like this. But baseball writer, uh, the BBWA is a bunch of jokes as well. So this is why we get that. Um, Ira, NFL, we don't have that much time left. But the Pro Bowl, I think you were trying to go. And then I think once everything came out about the weather, it's like, you know what? I think I'll watch this from my couch. Well, I didn't go to the game. I was supposed to go. That's why I went to the basketball instead. Um but boy, I'm glad I didn't go. Actually, bought the tickets and couldn't sell them. Um, it was terrible. It was a joke of a game. Anybody watched it? Uh, I think the, the last few years the Pro Bowl was becoming horrendous, and then last year it actually improved. And they see you play, but with the rain, everyone was afraid of getting injuries. Nobody tackled anybody. It was not even good two-hand touch. I don't know what the solution is. It is becoming whether they should go to flag football. I didn't think they would ever do it, but now. You can't play a game like that. It's an embarrassment to the NFL. They can't, they should not play. Anybody, it was the most boring, uh, ridiculous. It wasn't even, I said, two hand touch. It was, it was just weird. Anyone who watched the game felt like uncomfortable with watching it. Um, and it was just not a good game at all. And it was rain and rain. And I understand that you just, I mean, Juju Smith Schuster got hurt in the game. The last thing you want is to see a serious injury in this game. And, the NFL is really going to have to reconsider what they do with this. It's, it's, I think the ratings were very poor for this game, and I think they're lucky that people didn't watch it. But it is their all-star game. We have all these stars there, but they've got to figure out a different way, whether they even go flag football and do it that way. But they're not, if they're not going to tackle, they can't just have people just walk around and just push and shove a little bit and call that like a tackle. Ira, on a typical Sunday in any month that football is going on during the regular season, I'm on my couch from 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. watching football. I was watching, I was. Fl- I had to choose between the Pro Bowl and then also the Office and Live PD were on. And I opted to watch those <laughs> instead of the Pro Bowl. So that goes to show you, you know, the level that I think most people are into this game. You know what they are into, though? The Super Bowl. And it happens next Sunday. It's going to be Tom Brady taking on uh, Jared Goff. I don't know about this game, Ira. Uh, w- w- let's talk about it. And we'll give our picks at the end, but... I would have preferred to see the Rams. I mean, I would have preferred to see the Saints over the Rams. I did just think the game would have been a little more interesting and more uh, star-studded with the Breeze versus Brady old man fight. What are you anticipating here? Well, last year, I thought the Eagles were going to get blown out by the Patriots. So I'm nervous about I'm not going to say the Patriots are going to blow the Rams out. Um, I think what's going to happen in this game, when you try to look at their, their test, they're really evenly matched. The Patriots had the fifth-best offense, the Rams the second-best offense. The Patriots had, like, in penalty yards, they were, like, the 31st least penalized of teams. The Rams only were, like, the 23rd most penalized. Time possession, 8-13. and 13. And if you look, I went down, like, every single stat, and you try to figure out, like, what's, what's different. And, 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 and it was very similar, except for rushing yards. The, the Rams give up a lot of rushing yards. They're one of the worst teams in the league in terms of rushing yards whereas the Patriots are one of the best teams in the league in terms of giving up rushing yards. And 
The Rams have been running the ball well. Anyone watched them against the Cowboys? They ran great. Um, but I just I think in terms of you, you analyze this game, I think it's really going to come down to rushing. It's really going to come down to are the Patriots getting the ball at third and three and third and four and making those easy conversion thirds downs. And what will and I and it's going to be and I think what they're going to say is as the Patriots said against Kansas City, we took Tyree Ty- Ty- Hill out. We took their passing game out. What will what will Belichick try to take out this game? I mean, the defense last year in the Super Bowl was horrendous for the Patriots. But this year, I think, do they want to stop the run first? And I think I don't think Gurley's healthy. Uh, Todd Gurley has was 11 carries for 29 yards against the Bears on December 9th, 12 carries for 48 yards against the Eagles. So the last two games, he ran well against Dallas, but looked not that great. You know, he had 115 yards, but it wasn't a great game. And four carries for 10 yards against the Saints. I know Anderson has come in and been a lifesaver for the Rams. But I just think that since they lost Cooper Cup, they, their highlight of the year was the, the Chiefs game where they beat the Chiefs 54-51. They then beat the Lions and they didn't look well. They lose to the Bears 15-6 to when Goff throws four interceptions. They lose to Philly. Um, they win. They beat the Arizona Niners at the end of the season. I just don't think Goff is playing great. I think their running game is okay. I, I just think that they're they're struggling. Whereas I I just think, but I could see them winning. I could see if you could you can see the right the storylines that their running game just got they they don't ask Goff to do too much. Their running game dominates. They control the ball. The Patriots then get on third and tens, don't convert, and they just do almost to what the Patriots what they did to the Cowboys. They just keep running the ball, time of possession dominating the game, Goff making big plays when he can make big plays, and their defense coming up with Aaron Donald and the Dominic Sue, causing Brady trouble off the middle and, and playing great in terms of our defense. So there's, there's the way the Rams would win by just this, I think, a ball, not the crazy passing game, but more of a ball control game, where they think the Patriots are going to win the same way, running the ball, converting the third and threes, and then stopping the Rams on their run. But I think it's the running game. It's really weird. I really think it comes down to the running games and whether, because if the, if the Rams can't run and you're going to force Goff to make these plays, I think he's going to make mistakes. If he's going to throw interceptions, I don't think Brady's going to throw interceptions. I think Brady's going to have a great game. I think they can, they're able to overcome it. So that's where my feeling though is that if the Rams win, they're going to dominate by the run. I agree with you wholeheartedly on all those points. And I do think that this Patriots rushing attack, it came out of nowhere. And I'm a little bit, if I'm the Rams, like you said, they haven't been good against the run. And they've won these games on the backs of Sony Michelle and Rex Burkhead. So, Ira, for me, this is a battle of Josh McDaniels versus Wade Phillips. And can, you know, if the Patriots are in the driver's seat offensively, the way they were these last two games, and able to get a, just absolutely stop everyone on third down this game's going to be a, a two-score game uh, i i think the patriots are really going to take it to am i uh I, I can't see belichick going in and you know of all people in sports i think belichick has maybe the biggest chip on his shoulder of anybody if you think he's going to let the you know supposed to be successor to him the next wonderkin take over and beat him in a super bowl i don't think it's going to happen <laughs> so what's your pick well, I think the other the point is, if you look at how the Patriots are playing, the Tennessee game scares me. They were on a six-game winning streak when they played Tennessee, and they lost 34-10. They were down 27-10. to Henry ran for 58 yards. Lewis ran for 57 yards. Mariota played one of his own games. 
It was a weird game. It was at Tennessee. It was raining. There were some weird. The Patriots were three for fifteen on third down that game. They were out rushed one hundred and fifty to forty. But Sony Michelle was still coming back. wasn't really totally healthy that he is right now. Burkhead is healthy. Michelle's healthy. James White is healthy. The Miami game is a throwaway game. That was weird. They were up leading it. Doesn't matter. The Steeler game was interesting. They gave up one hundred forty-two yards to Jalen Samuels. They only were three for ten on third down uh, uh, against the Steeler defense that really isn't that good. They had 96 yards rushing, but it wasn't really good rushing. I think you look at those two games. If they're going to lose, it's going to look like the Tennessee game and the Pittsburgh game. But their running game, they drafted it. We said this earlier last week. They drafted Sonny Michelle in the first round, the first time that, that uh, uh, Belichick has ever drafted a running back, I think in the first two rounds. Um, and Sonny Michelle has run great for them and played great. James White catches the ball at the backfield at a rate that you've never seen. He had 10 or 12 targets. Edelman, Hogan catching the ball. You've got to think Gronk's going to come up big in this game. And you just got to think the Patriots are going to score almost every time they touch the ball. And their defense is going to be good enough to somehow stop the Rams a bunch of times. Uh, so I do think the Patriots are going to win. I'm not going to make a statement where I just cannot see the Rams winning. But I think the Patriots, I mean, the line is two and a half. So it's, it's a small line. But I do think that the Patriots will win this game. And I think it'll be, it'll be low. It'll be sort of like, 30 to 17 or 30 to 21 is not going to be, they're not going to score 40 like last year. I don't think it's, uh, I, because I do think the running backs are going to be key for this game uh, in terms of Sony Michelle and whether Gurley or Anderson runs well. If, if the Rams can't run, they're going to say, they're going to put the pressure on Goff to win it. They're just, they're going to throw four interceptions. Like, he, like look at that Bears game. He threw four interceptions. He looked terrible and he throws some bad passes and the Patriots have to take advantage of those bad passes. Uh, sort of like Clemson did against Tua. When Tua threw those, you know, the first pass of the game, and then that uh, when he went the home run ball, when those balls are up there and they're flooding around, you have to make the interception. And that's the key thing uh, for them. The, the, the Rams, that's why they're in the playoffs. When Breeze threw that poor ball, the Rams intercepted the ball in overtime. So when you, when Goff does make that bad throw, they have to make that interception. I agree with you wholeheartedly. If the Rams can't get the run going and get it going early, it's going to be a long game, and this is going to be a two-score. <laughs> it's going to be a, a two-touchdown game, I should say, if they can't get that going. Ira, we're just about out of time here, but I want to know, uh, where are you headed this week? I might go to the Super Bowl. I have a decided. It's one of the toughest games to go to. Well, well, see. Uh, it, it's, it's a tough call whether I go there or not. I have a decided. <laughs> but um, uh, it's, uh, I've been to five of them, and it's like the one game, though, that's really, in terms of like ticketing, it's a really hard ticket. It's not like any, it's like almost the Academy Awards. There's so few tickets available. Um, people have to go there to sell the tickets. Like, you go online to these other games, there's like seven, 8,000 tickets available. People can sell it on, on Stop of those. But it's just very hard to get these tickets. You have a lot of people that don't go to the games because they work for uh, like Pepsi and Gatorade and all these companies. They're not allowed to sell their tickets. You know, season ticket holders that get tickets through their teams, like from the Dolphins, which they like said, you cannot sell these tickets. The NFL has security teams that go and research who sold the tickets and where they went. Oh, wow. It's really hard to get these tickets. They control the secondary market. So it's a difficult game. It's a way overpriced game compared. You could almost go to seven NBA final basketball games or seven World Series games and sit in comparable seats to what it would be for a Super Bowl. So it is a very difficult game to go to, um, and, and it's, it's a tough one. This is, this is a very – it's a tough one to go. So maybe Super Bowl, I'm not sure. <laughs> Either way, I can't wait to hear all your thoughts on it next Monday night. Like I said, we are out of time. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.